said, our Bible reading is from Mark 2, uh, 13 to 3, verse 6. Um, and you should have it all open by now, but I'll give you a little bit more time for that. All right, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside a lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is still with them? They cannot, so long as they have him, have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his, as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered, into, entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath." Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He walked around at them in anger, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Thank you, Gibson. Good evening, everyone. Please keep your Bibles open at Mark chapter 2. Hands up if you're hot. Sorry if I made you hotter by making you put your arm in the air. Um, it is pretty warm, isn't it? Um, in fact, it's so warm that you're kind of just sweating, just sitting. You know, there's a mindset that says, that's okay. You know, if you go for a run and you sweat, you kind of go, well, that's normal. I expect to sweat when I'm going for a run. It's okay. We're working hard here, listening to God's word. So if we sweat, that's okay. That's normal. Um, I don't know if that helps you or not. That helped me once when I was conducting a wedding in... in 40-something degree heat wearing a, um, wearing a suit, but anyway. 
Just be thankful you're not wearing a woolen suit. Anyone wearing a woolen suit? No, okay. Um, we are working our way through um, Mark's Gospel, which is, uh, is great, and I'm really looking forward to throughout this term and the beginning of next term to uh, continue preaching our way through this, this Gospel. Uh, will you pray with me that as we do that tonight that we get a, a better picture of the Lord Jesus and what it means to live for Him? Let's, let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you help us now, uh, despite the heat, help us to understand your word, that we would know better who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him. We ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, show of hands, if I was to uh, call you a wowser, who knows what I'd be accusing you of, of being? Got a few, few people, yep, got an idea, maybe some people aren't too sure. Uh, by the way, it's got nothing to do with being wowed at something. I know wowser can be kind of an expression of wow, wowser. It's, um, it's a great word. It's uh, one of Australia's great contributions to the English language. Uh, it was first used uh, in, appeared in print in uh, 1899 in the Australian Journal. What does the word wowser mean? Well, here's a definition. It is someone who condemns or seeks to curtail to restrict the, the pleasures of others, or who works to have his or her own rigid morality enforced on all. Put another way, it's someone who, who tries to stop people from doing things they enjoy in the name of morality. Someone who's a, a killjoy, a, uh, a legalist. Now, historically, uh, the, uh, this idea of wowsers was connected with the temperance movement in Australia, which was a, a movement seeking to, uh, to restrict, reduce, and ultimately to ban the consumption of alcohol. So wowsers were people who were, who were down on things like people drinking alcohol. Uh, there's a suggestion that maybe it was an acronym. We only want social evils remedied. I don't know if that's true or not, or whether that was just sort of written in after the, after the term was invented. Um, my, why am I talking about wowsers? Well, my question for you tonight is, are Christians wowsers? Many people think of Christians along these lines. Many people think that Christians are people who follow a bunch of rules and regulations who are maybe fairly miserable about doing so and, and perhaps are fairly vocal that others should do likewise, that, that they too should be miserably following their rules. That's what some people think being a Christian is about and... It's about doing certain things, not doing certain other things in order to be good. Presumably good enough, good enough for God. Some see Christianity that way and well, they strive to embrace it, to attempt to, to live that out, to be like that. Others see it that way and they, they try hard to, to not become that, to not be that. They draw back from it, reject it. They don't want to be a killjoy. They don't want to be a do-gooder, a moralistic wowser. Well, what about us? In practice, do we see the Christian faith as a bunch of rules that we need to keep, things that we should do, things that we shouldn't do, things we should tell others to do or to not do? Uh, are we, in effect, wowsers? Or on the other hand, maybe we're not wowsers, but we're, we're kind of very keen to not become one or to be seen as one, and so we maybe hold back, we're a bit wary because we have this sneaking suspicion that actually proper Christians are actually wowsers. I mean, they're, they're kind of really disciplined people, right? I mean, they, they're committed. They do lots of good stuff. They go to church twice every Sunday and 
They don't just belong to two growth groups, Ben. They belong to three growth groups and, 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 and they get up early every morning to pray and they don't drink and they don't smoke and they don't drive fast and their, their name is on the church roster 47 times and, and they're, they're committed. They, they do lots of good stuff and they're serious Christians and maybe we see that, have that, that kind of image and we, we're a bit wary of that. We fear taking two things, things too seriously ourselves in case, in case we become a wowser. Now, underneath all this is the belief or the suspicion or the fear that Jesus is actually a wowser. And so if I'm, if I'm into Jesus, well, I'll become a wowser too. I hope that we'll see in the passage before us tonight that Jesus is not a wowser. In fact, he's the opposite of a wowser. And in this passage tonight, he goes toe-to-toe with people who, well, we might say were wowsers, and he showed up the emptiness of their legalistic rule-keeping. And in doing that, he, he shows us a far better way, a way of life and joy. Now, the, uh, the wowsers that I'm talking about in this passage are, of course, the Pharisees. Now, they were big on keeping rules, seeking to live righteously, and they criticised others who weren't. Uh, now, if you've read, uh, read the Gospels, we kind of know that the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? The, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law... You know, if, if this was being made into a movie, there'd be the kind of ominous music or the bad camera angle when the Pharisees appeared. Um, that's how they're, they're kind of typically seen. But actually, in their own time and culture, the Pharisees were respectable, law-abiding, up, upright members of their community. They were prepared to stand out to be different. They strived to live according to the law. But they were, in fact, wowsers which is why they had trouble with Jesus. We pick up the account. Uh, look with me in your Bibles. You'll need your Bibles open. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. And it says, Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. So here we have Jesus uh, again by the sea, calling someone to follow him. Uh, last week we saw in, uh, well, back in chapter 1, we saw uh, that is, is another calling by the sea, that of Simon and Andrew. And this one is similar. It follows the same st- structure, who he was, what he was doing, what Jesus said, how he responded. It's similar, but there's a significant difference. Whereas Simon and Andrew were fishermen, Levi was a tax collector. I think it's hard for us to appreciate the the, the shock of that statement, that Jesus called a tax collector to follow him. So the thing is, at that time in Israel, um, Israel was under Roman rule, and the tax collectors, they were working for the Romans, collecting money, taxes from their own people, and passing it on to the Romans. They were working for the enemy. Worse than that, many of them were corrupt, and they took more money than they uh, were supposed to, so as to enrich themselves. And so they were understandably greatly despised. Furthermore, because they were working with the Romans, who were Gentiles, non-Jews, tax collectors were regarded as, as unclean, as outcasts from society. And so here's Levi, an unclean, despised outcast, and Jesus calls him to follow him. It's not the expected choice for followers of Jesus. But it actually gets worse. We read next that uh, Jesus was at a a party at Levi's house. 
I said worse, it might actually be better, depending on your perspective. He's at a party at Levi's house, hanging out with a bunch of tax collectors and so-called sinners. Unsurprisingly, the Pharisees, remember they're the good, upright, respectable citizens, they have an issue with this. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you doing this, Jesus? See, in the Pharisees' mind, there's two types of people. There's the righteous, that is, people like them, and there are sinners. Other lesser people who, who don't have the time or the desire or the aspiration to live according to their standard of righteousness. And they're seeing Jesus associating with sinners. Jesus hears this and he says, verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think here Jesus is using their labels of righteous and sinners. And he says, well, I'm for the sinners. He didn't come to hang out with the clean-cut, respectable, self-righteous churchgoers who act like they have it all together. He came to hang out with sinners. Not because he was a sinner or because he endorsed their sin, not at all, but because they are the ones that he came to help. He didn't come to to pander to the hypocrisy of self-righteous wowsers. He came to call and save sinners, to, to heal them of their sickness, of their sin. He came to heal us of the sickness of our sin. Friends, this is wonderful news. I don't know how aware you are of your own sin. Maybe, you're, maybe you feel the burden of it. Maybe you're very aware of your, your failure, your weakness. Maybe you see yourself not so much in the shoes of the self-righteous Pharisee, but you're, you're a bit more like Levi, the outcast. Or maybe one of the other sinners on the edge of the party at his house. And I want to say, if that's you, don't think that you need to become a, a Pharisee, that you need to somehow strive to, to clean up your act before Jesus will pay attention to you as if you're somehow too sinful for Jesus no one is too sinful to be saved by Jesus Jesus came to save sinners like you like me so if you're aware of your sin if you're facing your failure don't dance around it don't brush it aside or try to justify it or bolster yourself to just kind of try to be better Bring yourself before Jesus. Ask for forgiveness, for healing of the the sickness of your sin. Bring yourself before Jesus, the one who said, I have not come to call the so-called righteous, but sinners. If you're a sinner, which you are, as am I, Jesus came to call us. How good is that? Well, this is round one of Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees. It doesn't stop there. In fact, it it builds from here. We read uh, next verse, verse 18. Look there with me in your Bibles. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Now, we need to understand what what this uh, fasting is about. Uh, It seems that the Pharisees often fasted, they they denied themselves food for a period of time, and that that was a a ritual as part of their kind of life of piety. 
Uh, it was an expression of their, their commitment, their discipline. They would even deny themselves food. I've seen an example of it in, um, in Luke chapter 18, where Jesus told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, Luke records uh, this. It says, uh, uh, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, good description of wowsers, uh, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up from the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Notice, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Notice there that the Pharisee's fasting is, is given as evidence of his, his pious, seemingly righteous behaviour which fasting, it seemed, had become by the time of the Pharisees. It was this badge of piety. That's different to the fasting that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, fasting is often about mourning. It's about grief. Uh, one example is in 2 Samuel 1, which we, we looked at 2 Samuel, was that last year? Or maybe the year before? In response to David's... Um, uh, sorry, David receiving the news of the death of Saul and Jonathan. It says, Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. So fasting is connected with mourning. That kind of makes sense. If you're overcome by grief, often you don't really feel like eating. But it's often in the Old Testament, it's often connected with mourning, particularly for sin and repenting of sin. Uh, numerous examples, don't have time to go through them, but um, if you want to jot them down, King Ahab in 1 Kings 21, or Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 1, or the Israelites in uh, Nehemiah chapter 9. Another interesting example is in uh, Isaiah 58, where God warns that fasting must not be just a kind of empty display of an empty ritual, a sign of, uh, but it must, sorry, must rather be a sign of repentance and change, which kind of shows the great irony of what it became for the Pharisees. So fasting in the Old Testament, is, it's about mourning, it's about grief, it's about repentance of sin. Which is why Jesus responds to, to their question about him and why his, his disciples aren't fasting, why he responds the way he does. Look there, verse 19, Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. He's saying, now's not the time for mourning, for fasting. Now's the time to party, to celebrate, to rejoice. This is a, a wedding banquet and Jesus is the bridegroom. He's here. I mean, I mean, can you imagine going to a wedding reception and being informed that actually it's been decided that uh, for the wedding reception tonight, we're all going to fast. I mean, that'd be a bizarre wedding. It'd be inappropriate. It'd be quite concerning, really. Is this an occasion to be mourning and um, I mean, outrage. Now's, now's not the time, says Jesus, for, for mourning. Now is the time for rejoicing, celebrating. Jesus is here. But then notice Jesus says, well, there will come a time for mourning and fasting. He, he looks ahead. He prophesies verse 20. He says, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. There'll come a time where Jesus will be taken. He's speaking of his death. That will be a time for mourning and fasting. Now, on this topic of fasting, just as an aside, uh, how should we think about fasting? I know it's something that some Christians place a, a big emphasis on. 
Uh, others just assume that, well, Christians do this. I don't know what your experience has been, whether that's been something that you've heard or been part of your life. Um, for some, it's got to do with a, a self-denial, maybe a way of focusing on God, being disciplined to pray. Uh, I've heard some say it's about um, giving time. So instead of spending time eating, you spend time praying. Uh, pragmatically, I'm not... I'm not sure that going without food is particularly helpful for focusing on God or praying. I tend to find I concentrate better. That's okay. I think people might find a practical benefit in it, and that's, that's okay. I think we need to be careful, though, in our thinking, that we don't kind of creep into the Pharisees' way of thinking this is some sort of an act of piety. Uh, we mustn't think that, that fasting can, can bring us closer to God. Except for all the old joke, of course, if you fast long enough, you'll meet God. And, you know, but, but it's not like, well, if, we, if I fast, well, that, that'll make my relationship with God better. As if, you know, God looks at Jono and says, oh, he's gone without food for, for, for four minutes or six minutes or six hours. Uh, I'm going to reward him for his self-imposed suffering. It's, God doesn't work like that. Our, our standing before God doesn't depend on our pious efforts. Our efforts at self-denial. Our standing before God depends solely on Jesus' death for us. Him dying to take the punishment for our sin so that we can be freely forgiven, that we can enter into relationship with God. If our trust is in him, we're secure in that. We're in right relationship with God. We can rest in that. We don't need to win God's favor. We don't need to try and manipulate his favor with our pious efforts. There may be some personal value in fasting if it helps you to it helps to give you time or helps to give you a physical reminder to pray or something. But we mustn't take our practice of fasting and, and kind of read it back into the Bible and say, oh, well, that's what the Bible endorses and says we should do. Our fasting may have little or nothing to do with what the Bible says about fasting. Because as we see throughout the Old Testament, biblical fasting is about mourning and grieving over sin in particular. Now, there may be a real place for doing that. By all means, fast and mourn and grieve over your sin. But more importantly, bring yourself and your sin to Jesus, to the great doctor, the one who heals sinners, who invites them not to fast but to feast with him in celebration, rejoicing. Jesus brings a new time, a time not for fasting but for feasting. He brings a new day, which is what he goes on to say. He says that, uh, that he brings something completely new and that you can't mix with the old. He goes on to say, verse 21, uh, no one, uh, verse 21, uh, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth, that's a new cloth, on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Now, I'm not big on um, winemaking, but it's pretty easy to understand. The thing is, you can't mix the new with the old. It just doesn't work. Jesus brings the new way of forgiveness, of healing, of life, of the kingdom of God. You can't mix that with the Pharisees' rigid, self-righteous rule-keeping. The new doesn't mix with the old. Uh, this new way that Jesus speaks of ruffled feathers, and it continues to ruffle feathers as we read on. Verse 23 one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, what's the problem going on here? 
Um, it's not that they were um, pinching someone else's grain. Uh, it, it's, in fact, Deuteronomy uh, 23, verse 25 on the screen, it says, under the Old Testament law, if you enter your neighbour's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing, standing grain. Makes sense. It's not stealing if you, just take, you know, take a handful of grain. Shouldn't start harvesting your neighbour's um, grain, though. So the problem wasn't that they were helping themselves to someone else's grain. The problem for the Pharisees was that they did this on the Sabbath, the day that was to be a day of, of rest. And, and that was expressed in the, the Old Testament law. For example, in um, Exodus 34, it says, Six days you shall labour, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the ploughing season and harvest, you must rest. So you can't harvest on the Sabbath. You're meant to be resting. Were the disciples harvesting by taking a few handfuls of grain? Well, this is where the, the Pharisees' legalism takes over. Uh, in their eagerness to keep the law and to be seen to be keeping the law, they, they'd extended the law and come up with 39 different types of work that they defined that were forbidden on the Sabbath, and this included reaping. And according to them, Jesus and his disciples were doing the wrong thing. They, they were stepping outside of the Pharisee system. They were bursting their old wineskins. And so they accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the law. And so Jesus re uh, replies by questioning their whole overly tight view of the law. He refers them back to, to King David and his companions who, in a desperate situation as they fled from the murderous King Saul, ate the consecrated bread that only the, the priests were supposed to eat. Now, Jesus isn't saying, well, you know, the law doesn't matter. Look what David did. Go ahead and break it. Now, what he's doing is he, he's pointing out their overly tight observance of the letter of the law, such they actually lose sight of the spirit of the law, which is exactly what they were doing with the Sabbath. As Jesus says, he puts his finger on it in verse 27. Look there with me, verse 27, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath laws were given as a, as a good thing, an opportunity for rest. The Sabbath should relaxation. It's not meant to be this kind of onerous burden that you must miserably serve. No, the Sabbath should serve you and your good rather than you serving it. But notice also just how full-on Jesus is with the Pharisees here. I mean, he says to them, have you never read what David did? I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty direct. He's saying to these people who pride themselves in their knowledge of the Scriptures, don't you know your Bible? It's kind of like saying to a maths teacher, don't you understand addition? It's pretty full-on. What's more, they would have read what David did. They would know the story of how David was being opposed by Saul how Saul was supposed to be the leader of Israel, had turned against God and was doing his own thing, and Saul was trying to kill David and the one whom God had chosen to be king. Jesus reminds him of this incident. He's paralleling himself and his men with David and his men. And, well, hang on, who's Saul in this parallel? Oh, that's you, the Pharisees. The one who's trying to, who's opposing God's king and trying to have him killed. It's confronting. But just in case Jesus hadn't got up their noses enough, he makes this profound claim. Next verse, verse 28. So the Son of Man, speaking about himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Jesus is bigger than their petty Sabbath rules. He's Lord even of the Sabbath. And I think he's saying even, even more than that, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Because this conflict continues, the conflict over the Sabbath. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. They want a reason to accuse Jesus. If he heals the man, well, that's work. According to their 39 different types of work, you can't heal. On the Sabbath, the trap is set. What does Jesus do? This is masterful. Verse 3. Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus uh, Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? He says to them, look, you want the law, you tell me what's the law about. Is it about doing good or is it about doing evil? Is it about saving or killing? It's a key question. And I mean, the answer's obvious, right? The, the, the law, it's about doing good, it's about saving. The answer's obvious, but such is their twisted commitment to keeping the rules that in their silence, they choose evil and killing on the Sabbath. We read, but they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Notice the, what the Pharisees do. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. What do they do on the Sabbath? Not interested in saving, they're interested in killing. And who do they plot to kill? Well, the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who's in charge of the Sabbath. And more than just a, a day of rest each week, the Sabbath is a picture, a rich picture of God's promised rest. He gave Israel rest in the promised land. That was their Sabbath. He, he promised an even greater rest to his people, an eternal rest in heaven, in the new creation. And who's the one who brings that rest? It's Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus who, who does good, who saves life on the Sabbath. Jesus, the one who came not to call the self-righteous, but to call sinners. Now, it's interesting in, um, in Matthew's uh, parallel passage, uh, the same account in Matthew's gospel, just before this, Jesus says these words. Uh, they're, um, they're very famous words. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, friends, Jesus is not a wowser. His way is not the way of miserable, restrictive, self-righteous denial. His way is the way of life, of forgiveness, of salvation, of rest. He's the one who gives life, real life, the best life. In a world that's that's plagued by the the sickness of our sin, Jesus gives healing, life, forgiveness. So if you're burdened by sin, rest in Jesus. Rest in him. Following Jesus is, is not a matter of being uptight about keeping a standard of legalistic righteousness. It's about coming to him like Levi, being forgiven, joining the party that he brings. 
That doesn't mean there aren't difficulties along the way. doesn't mean it's all roses. In fact, following Jesus will often lead us into suffering in this world, not away from it. Uh, the world rejected our Lord, it will reject us too. There, there are and will be hard times. But following Jesus is following the author of life. The one who came to bring life, life to sinners like Levi, like you, like me. Jesus calls us to follow him. That's a radical call. That's a, an all-in call. It calls for everything, to be, for him to be first in our lives. It is a life of commitment, of giving our all. But it's a call to true life. Life with Jesus, the Lord of life. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace and mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he calls us not to miserable, self-imposed rule-keeping, but to joy, to forgiveness, to life. Father, help us to come to Jesus, to come to him honestly as we are in our sin, in our weakness, not to put on displays of self-righteousness, not to think that we need to impress you, but simply as we are, to come to you for forgiveness and to rest secure in Jesus, in the life, in the forgiveness that he gives. Please help us to trust and follow Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.